All right, so we left off. We're still, we're still in Corinth. Um, verse 18, and we're not going to get too far in uh, Acts today. First half of verse 18 is all the farther we're going to get. So not a sprint, a marathon here. Um, So we see this, man, right, right off the gate, this, this beautiful and dynamic example of, of a Christian disciple completely surrendering to God's will. And we see that throughout Paul's life. And, and especially we see that here, just in this, this half of a verse, in, as Paul's finishing up the second missionary journey here in, uh, in this passage. So... It says, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and then set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. So we see here, Paul set sail from Corinth, you know, despite being completely settled. You know, think about just I mean, how, how difficult it must have been for Paul here in I mean, he was just so settled down in this, in, in this permanent ministry. And, you know, he, he was coming and going and, and bearing witness and ministering freely here in Corinth. And the scripture said that, that he remained in Corinth for a good while, for, for many days. And, and according to, to verse 11 uh, up there, he was, he was there at least 18 months. Uh, quite some time, a little bit longer than 18 months, but at least 18 months, it says. Ministering freely without the pressure and strain of, of open abuse and, and opposition um, to Paul. No man could blame Paul for wanting to settle down and, and carrying a mission there in Corinth. I mean, he was protected by the ruling of Gallio. Remember, the, the Jews... Uh, ensued an attack on him and brought him for, before the, the new proconsul, Gallio, and, and was saying that, that what he was speaking was against the law, that it was a religion that was against the Roman law, and Gallio wanted nothing to do with it. So and he was protected by Roman law at that point because Gallio was like, no, this is, this is a matter within Judaism not something separate. You know, and the, the, there were people there coming to saving faith in Corinth. So just as God had promised up in verses 9 and 10, there was many that, that loved Paul there. The believers in Corinth loved him. And it was a very strategic in commerce area. It was the capital of Icaia. It was a trade area. There's so many people would have been coming and going. And so the spread of the gospel would have been, been very fluent there, continuous for, for Paul. So it had been so easy for him just to settle there and stay there, to never leave. But note a critical fact. And God had not called Paul to be a resident minister of a local church. He did not call Paul to stay in Corinth. Paul was called to carry the gospel forth as an evangelist, as a missionary. To remain there in Corinth as a local minister 
would have been against God's will. Paul would miss the great call for his life. So the point is this, being the obedient believer that he was, Paul, he set sail because it was God's purpose for his life. He set sail despite being comfortably settled. He set sail to carry forth the message of the glorious gospel. He set sail to reach men and women and children for Jesus. And how many, how many people kick against God's call because of being comfortably settled, because of friends and family, popularity, acceptance, position, possession, materialism, security and safety. And the Christian disciple refuses refuses to miss God's calling. He denies himself. He takes up his cross daily and follows Christ. No matter what, no matter where it takes him. Matthew 16, 24, 25 says that. And Christ told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. In Luke's account, it says daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse, 20 says, says for, verse 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's go ahead and jump over there to, to math, Matthew chapter 16. And just through the context of, of Paul following God's will throughout his entire life and how we are to, to follow God's will in every aspect of our lives. What does it mean to, to, to do this? What does it mean to pick up our cross daily? We'll just jump up. To we'll read this and I'll read this entire passage here, starting in verse 21 of, of Matthew 16. It says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Forever who would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they, will see, they, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we're going to break this down and, and, and peel this, this passage back again on the context of, of Paul here finishing up this second missionary journey as he set sail from the comforts of, of Corinth in order to continue in obedience to God's will for his life. Um, verse 21, I'll read 21 through 23 again. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus' death required total commitment on his part. His death, his death was necessary and that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer. The word there, must go in the Greek, is a strong, it's, it's, it's a constraint. A necessity was laid upon Christ. His death and resurrection had been planned and willed by God through all eternity. The prophets had predicted it, that he must fulfill the will of God. For he himself ordained his own death. Also, the resurrection of Christ was also necessary. Jesus' prediction of his resurrection is, is clear to us because we look back upon it through the revealing of the Holy Spirit, but it was never clear to the disciples at this point. The reason why is it's very simple. It was to be a very new experience to them. It was something new. No one had ever risen from the dead to never die again. It was essentially unprecedented to them. The apostles believed, probably somewhat like Martha did, there was going to be a future resurrection of all men, which is true. But the actual resurrection of a dead person in the present would be inconceivable to someone who either hasn't, one, seen our risen Lord face to face, or two, hasn't been revealed the truth of our risen Lord by the Holy Spirit. So Paul, having seen the risen Lord, tirelessly preached this truth in hopes that the Holy Spirit would open his audience's heart to understand. Paul, when he stood before King Agrippa in, in Acts chapter 26, he proclaimed this, he said, To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said will come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
He's preaching Christ crucified. You see the difference to those that when the Holy Spirit reveals that truth, you see the difference, repentance. Right after that, you see the, the response from Festus. He says, Paul, you are out of your mind. The response from a worldly view. Christ revealed his death in resurrection here in stages. He revealed it only as the disciples were able to receive and, and bear the facts. Christ always, he always teaches us gradually and moves us along as, as we are able to learn. And this is, there is great truth in this saying that he does not put more upon us than we can bear. And just think about it, if he just downloaded every single truth of the scripture instantaneously upon us. I feel like we would just implode. You almost see that in what like in the reformed theology world they call it cage stage. Like some of you have kind of experienced that or seen it or know what I'm talking about that download of the deep understandings of Reformed theology. Sometimes you need to get put back in your cage because of that huge download of truth and Scripture. But note here that, that Jesus, he spoke of his resurrection when he spoke of his death. I mean, it was... It was for the joy that it was set before him that he would endure the cross, as he says, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. The joy and hope of spending eternity with Christ is what fuels a believer to bear our cross while here on earth. So his death, secondly, stirs, stirs the natural man. His death stirs the natural man. Natural man rebels against the idea of the cross. Completely rebels against it. Natural man wants a complete other way than the cross. Something we talked about last week. This is what Peter was doing here. He was rebelling against the idea that God's son was to die. That his blood had to be shed for the sins of the world. Peter, man. He could accept that Jesus was the son of living God, but not as a suffering savior. Such an idea was repulsive and, and unacceptable to Peter. It was unacceptable to him. Therefore, he tried to put an end to that idea. Note the words here. It says, Peter took him. The Greek here, the Greek is, is strong. It means he, he, he caught hold of him caught hold of him. Peter, Peter took, took hold of Christ and, and then took him aside, had a little private conference with Christ. And imagine doing that. Note also that Peter began to rebuke him. Peter was a bold dude, that's for sure. This again is strong. It's not just a, a, a wish, but a forcible attempt 
to stop the idea of a suffering Savior. He's like, this shall never happen to you. This must not happen. This cannot happen. God forbid it. That's what he's saying. Point is this. Peter was, he was out to stop the cross. He was out to stop the cross of Christ. He was urging Christ to be the Messiah of power, of fame, of provision, whom the Jews were expecting. Peter was urging Christ to follow his own human schemes instead of God's way. And by such urging, he was tempting Christ with every same compromises that Satan used to tempt Christ. The compromises of power and fame. He was tempting him with power and fame. Peter was extremely zealous for God. We know that. We see that throughout Scripture. He's extremely zealous for God. But he was mistaken and ignorant here in his zeal. And he may have been sincere, but he was sincerely wrong nonetheless. He did not understand that God was planning to save his people through the death of his son. So such behavior is the way of the world. It is the natural carnal mind. Man rebels and recoils against the idea of a suffering Savior. Suffering Savior who has to die for the sins of the world. A Savior who demands the same sacrifice and denial of his followers. Such an idea is unacceptable and repulsive to an unbeliever. The natural man's idea of God and of God's plan for man is, is seen in three basic concepts. The first one, some think that the path of life is, is love and love alone. Rather than sola fides, it's solus amor, love alone. That's what man, carnal mind, thinks. So they live showing interest and care for others alone. God is seen as a giving, loving, and essentially like a lenient grandfather type of a person. The the, the lenient grandfather who just tolerates even the the worst behavior. No matter how much human suffering and and devastation is is fashioned by the hands of a person. To think of the cross and, and the blood of Christ as an emblem of suffering is repulsive and repelling to them. The cross is viewed only as an emblem of love, not of sin and shame. The way of love is is thought to be the path of life which man is to follow. Second way that the natural mind of man gravitates towards is something that, that, that comfort and pleasure is the path of life. Through comfort and pleasure. God, again, is viewed only as that lenient grandfather type who gives man the, the good things of life and helps, helps man only when man is in trouble. 
God's will for man is thought to be of comfort and pleasure, ease and plenty, health, wealth, and prosperity. Again, the cross is only an emblem of love and care for the world, not of suffering and sacrifice and self-denial. So the shame, pain, and agony of the cross and its purpose of reconciling a world lost in sin and swimming in desperate need is completely overlooked. Jesus speaks of these people in Luke chapter 8. People tend to to be the ones that, that hear They hear the word. They even partake in in a lot of the blessings of being in communion and fellowship of believers. He says the seeds fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And bring no fruit to maturity. Lastly, the carnal mind. Some feel that triumph, victory, position, authority, power, simply just making a name for yourself is God's way. This was the idea of of most Jews in Christ's day. It was was Peter's concept here of the Messiah at this, this point right here. The concept of power, position, and authority are clearly seen in, in movements that stress self-image, self-improvement, personality developments. Developing one's self-image as much as possible and achieving all that one can are said to be God's plan and path for man. Essentially every Joel Olstein book ever printed. However, the idea of suffering and sacrifice and self-denial is completely rejected. First John says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. His death shows man to be the adversary of God. The literal meaning of Satan in in the words, get behind me, Satan, is adversary. Calling Peter Satan is is very stern here. Yet such sternness was necessary. Peter was tempting Christ with the very same temptation that Christ had faced in the wilderness with Satan. Satan. The loyalty and allegiance of man without the cross was again being suggested to him. How this, this must have cut Christ. This time the temptation was coming from one of his own disciples. When a man kicks against God's plan for life, he becomes an adversary of God. 
He opposes God's will. In essence, man, he says that he knows what is best. He's wiser than God. Think about it. When a man does not submit to God's plan for life, the crux of what he is saying to God is the cross is not necessary. Jesus dying to save the world was a useless plan and was not needed. Of course Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. So what Peter was doing and saying, he was opposing God's plan for life. That is, saving sinners through the death of his son. He was saying that he was wiser than God. And note here, Christ abruptly turned to Peter before Peter could say anything else and stopped him right in his tracks. He charged Peter with being like Satan and that he was trying to oppose God's will. He had become as Satan, an adversary to God and God's plan for his son for the salvation of the world. 1 John 3.10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Note that no man should instruct or try to counsel God. Our task is not to force our ideas upon God is to surrender wholly and completely to his will. The death of Christ reveals man's true nature. Note here the words, it says here, not setting your mind. Not setting your mind. Peter did not have his mind and his thoughts in alignment with God's mind and God's thoughts. Peter's mind and thoughts were were worldly and self-pleasing, not spiritual and pleasing to God. He was using human reasoning and not spiritual and God reasoning. The thought that God's son had to die and shed his blood for the sins of the world was, was disgraceful and distasteful to Peter. In his mind, such a concept was was unfitting for God. Note how how true Christ's words to Peter are. It says, you are setting your mind on things, you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. The death of Christ reveals man's true nature. A nature that uses natural and carnal reasonings instead of spiritual reasonings. Paul elaborates on this in in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 7. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, 
But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Two things, two things should be noted. The cross should be viewed as repulsive. The cross is a symbol of sin and shame. Hanging upon the cross, God's very own Son bore the wrath and punishment of the believing ones. Sin and shame are always repulsive. And the fact that God's Son hung there, becoming sin for us, is repulsive. Nothing could be any more distasteful than what actually happened. The most egregious sin ever committed in history, the killing of our Lord. Secondly, the cross should be viewed as glorious. As glorious. The cross is a symbol of life and forgiveness of sin. Through the cross, God gloriously reconciled man to himself. So much comes through the glorious work of the cross, which is why Paul states in, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, But may it, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus' death demands the total commitment of a man. Christ gives three commandments of of total commitment here. First one, a person must deny himself. The word deny means to to disown, disregard, forsake, denounce, reject, refuse, restrain, disclaim, and do without. It means to subdue, to disregard oneself and one's interest. Very simply, it means to say no. But note the call is not to say no to some, simply some behavior or thing, but is to say no to self. To self. A person is to deny self. And this means much more than just being negative. That is, giving up something or doing without something. It means that we are to act positively. Say yes to Christ and no to self. It means Christ rules and reigns in our hearts and lives. Every aspect, wholly and completely. In the Greek, the word deny is is an ingressive aorist, which means that the person enters into a new state or condition. 
It means let him at once begin to deny himself. So a person must deny himself. Secondly, a person must take up the cross. Now, people in Jesus' day knew exactly what that meant, to take up the cross. They saw criminals bear the cross to the place where they would be executed. They saw many, they witnessed many crucifixions, some even by the side of the road as they entered into cities. They knew what it meant to pick up a cross. The cross does not mean merely to bear one's particular hardship in life, such as poor health, abuse, unemployment, invalid or derelict parents, unsaved spouse, wayward children. The cross is always, always an instrument of death, not just an object to carry or bear. Always an instrument of death. The Christian is to die mentally and actively. He is to deny himself daily. He is to put his will, his desires, his wants, and his ambitions to death. He is to follow Jesus and to do his will all the day long. No, this is not negative or passive behavior at all. It takes positive, active behavior to deny self, to take up your cross daily, to follow Christ. A person has to act, be diligent and enduring in order to deny and die to self. There are are several ways the believer is to to die to self. Paul, in in Romans chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, he he spells it out in a way that is as clear as can be. Romans chapter 6, you can turn there if you feel convicted to do so. Romans 6, 11 through 13, it says, So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So we see six things here. The first one, the believer considers or counts himself crucified with Christ. It says, you have also considered yourself dead to sin. Secondly, the believer considers or counts himself dead to sin, but alive to God. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Third, the believer does not let sin reign in his body. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He says, 
the believer does not present his bodily members as instruments of sin. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Fifth, the believer presents himself to God as much as those who are alive from the dead are presented to God. He says, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And lastly, the believer presents his bodily members as instruments of righteousness. He says, but present in your members of, to God as instruments for righteousness. This is a life which can be described as committing all that one is and all that one has to Christ. Dying to oneself is repeated every day. Also keeping in mind that and we are fallible. We do and will make mistakes just as Peter did. We are reminded, though, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every single morning. So we see here, a person must deny himself, a person must take up his cross, and lastly, a person must follow Jesus. The word follow means to be a follower or companion, to be a disciple. We went through two, two and three weeks ago, eight markers of what it looks like to be a Christian disciple. has the idea of seeking to be in union with and in likeness of. It is following Christ, seeking to be just like him. Again, this is not a passive behavior, but an active commitment and walk. This energy and effort and action is going after Christ with zeal and energy, struggling and seeking to follow in his footsteps, no matter the cost. Just as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. Verse 25 of Matthew 16. I'm going to David Miller style this. I'm done with that point. I'm just going to move on to the next one. If those that know David Miller. Verse 25, Matthew 16. For whoever should save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, 
there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus' death offers four arguments for, for total commitment. An abandonment of this life saves a person. So what, what does it mean when Scripture says a person saves his life by losing it and, and loses his life by finding it? Well, the key here is, is, is in the word for my sake. He says, for my sake. Christ says, whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. And an encounter with the divine creator of the universe will surely induce that new believer to give their life for the one who died for theirs. For his sake. But the person who keeps his life in what he has and seeks more and more in this life shall lose his life completely and eternally. The person who, who saves his life by seeking to avoid the aging of the body and death and yet denies Christ, that person shall lose his life eternally person who saves his life by seeking to make his life more and more comfortable, easy, and secure beyond what is necessary and neglects Christ shall lose his life eternally. The person who saves his life by seeking to gain wealth and power and fame by compromising Christ shall lose his life eternally person who saves his life by seeking thrills and excitement and stimulation of this world by ignoring Christ shall lose his life eternally. The call of Christ is just what it says. A life of self-denial that takes up the cross and follows in his footsteps daily. A man's soul is... is worth more than the entire world. The word soul is the same word translated life in verse 25. Christ uses the word life in, in, in two senses. You know, there are two stages in the same life. The life that exists here on earth and a life that exists beyond this life. Once a person's life is, is conceived into this world, he shall exist forever. It's just a matter of where he goes after this world. Now, to be in the presence of his glory for eternity or to be in the presence of his divine wrath for eternity. No man can gain the whole world, but what if he could? What if, the, what if a man could gain the entire world? All the, pro, like every pleasure and wealth and power of the world and fame. If he could gain it all, it would mean absolutely nothing compared to his soul. 
four primary reasons why the soul is far more superior than anything on earth. One, because everything fades. Everything passes away. A person possesses something only for a short amount of time. Secondly, everything cannot be used at once. Think about everything you own and using it all at once. Everything. Just using it. It's a funny picture in, in your mind. Everything sits and remains unused most of the time. Clothes sits, a car sits, power goes unused. Popularity and fame quickly pass and are forgotten about. Thirdly, the human soul is is eternal. The soul never dies and never ceases to exist shall live forever, again, either in the presence of his glory for eternity or in the presence of his divine wrath for all eternity. Lastly, the human soul is more valuable, again, than the entire world. And all men will confess this. We've been talking about this in the Friday um, discipleship. You see, I know Ray Comfort uses this analogy all the time and and that you know, would, it, would a person sell their eyes for, for all the money in the world, for a trillion dollars? I have not come across anybody that would say yes. How much precious is one soul than their eyes, just the, the lens they use, their soul uses to, to look out of. And that analogy bring a man to the understanding of there's nothing in the world that's more precious than their soul. Once a man has lost his soul, it is lost. It's gone. It cannot be bought back. The man forfeits and suffers the loss of it forever. Imagine, and even if a man possessed all the wealth of the world, on judgment day, he would not be able to buy back his soul. Why? Because it's gone. It's gone. It has passed on forever. The book of Hebrews tells us a man is to die once and then there is judgment. That man will stand before God with no wealth, no fame, and no possessions. He will stand there a lost soul, awaiting judgment, awaiting his sentence of eternity in the lake of fire. So I ask, what then will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. The day of judgment is coming. When Christ returns, the the true value of sacrifice versus self-satisfaction will be clearly seen. It will be clearly on display. 
those called into a sacrificial life for Christ will receive their inheritance. Those who died in a life of self-satisfaction will be condemned. Man is to be judged according to what he has done, it says here. This is not simply isolated acts, but a continuous behavior. It's easy for a person to, to put on a mask each and every Sunday, or put on a mask when they're around certain people. So that person is to be rewarded on the basis of his continuous behavior, not isolated acts. Now this verse here is not promoting a, a work-based salvation by any means, which we know is, is not true, and, but it's rather what James says, that, that a faith without works is dead. A person is not saved by good works, but saved to do good works. Paul says in Philippians, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, there is a responsibility to the believer to actively pursue in obedience the process of sanctification and to do it with fear and trembling, an attitude with which Christians are to pursue that sanctification. It involves a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and respect before him. Lastly here, in verse 28, we see a promise is given. This verse is much clearer when we compare it to Mark's account. In Mark 9, verse 1, he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It is the power of the kingdom to which Jesus refers that is his death, his resurrection, Pentecost, to the many, many added to his kingdom that resulted from his atonement and the imputation of that atonement through the Holy Spirit. And after, after Pentecost, the power of his kingdom came in power beyond anything the disciples could have ever imagined. That same power of the Holy Spirit takes dying men and gives them life today. The same power of the kingdom we bear witness to today. So when we think on this, entire umbrella of what it means to deny oneself, to pick up your cross daily. And seeing that in the context of, of Paul here, as he's finishing up this second missionary journey here at the end of 18. 
we can find ourselves throughout seasons of life where we're very comfortable. And there are times in which God brings us into those comfort, those, com- those times of comfort. But we always have to step back and, and, and look at things through the lens of God. Is it our will? Is it what we desire is what's going on? Or is this truly God's will for our life? Are we comfortable and settled? Stagnant. So therefore compromising in God's will. Are we failing to pick up our cross daily? So we look to Paul in this reminder of how easily he could have planted roots in Corinth, stayed there the remainder of his life. But knowing it wasn't God's will, he continued to pick up his cross, follow God's will for his life, to set sail for Syria, continue to be the evangelist, the missionary in which he was called to do as we are all called to pick up our cross daily. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our hearts be always set on you and your will. As we continue to, to work out our salvation, come before you with fear and trembling in that we never take lightly the cross in which your son bore for so many. That his sacrifice always be at the forefront of our minds and at the core of our hearts. It's a constant reminder to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross daily. Father, I pray if, if, if anyone here today struggling with denying self, whether it be holy or in specific areas of our life. Father, may your spirit convict, guide, regenerate, sanctify, and comfort that person or persons that they may, in each and every one of us, bring glory and honor to your son's name and all that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.